0: You're listening to the Church of the Redeemer' Sermon podcast. Join us at our 10 a.m. worship gathering in Alcoa, Tennessee. Visit us at churchotr.com for more info and to hear other sermons in this series. Our sermon this week opens with First Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17.. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, given how lonely and isolated Americans have become, there's now only three plausible types of people who will knock on your door in the middle of the day for a cold call. The first is a door-to-door salesman selling you either pest control or internet or something. The second is a Mormon, and the third is a Jehovah's Witness. And I bet for the vast majority of you, your instinctual response when you give that knock on the door is to run away, turn off all the lights and pretend that no one's home, or to answer the door and wish someone along very, very quickly, whether they're one of those two religious bodies or not. In other words, your knee-jerk reaction my knee-jerk reaction is often rejection. Now picture yourself on the reverse side of that rejection, and I bet it's that fear of rejection why many of us do not often share our faith about Jesus. We picture ourselves on the other side and say, well, I don't want to talk to the Mormons, and I don't want to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses, and so why would someone else want to talk to me about what I believe about God? Especially if I'm going to challenge their most personally held beliefs. Now, to handle that objection, first let me remind you that throughout this sermon series, this is the fifth of six sermons, I have been trying to promote a, a way of evangelism called relational evangelism, which is we're, we, you're really not going to share Jesus and be effective meeting a total stranger and just trying to get them to convert on the spot. We're talking about building relationships with people over years. And eventually getting a chance to share Jesus. So we're certainly not talking about forced interactions or cold calling. Even still, it's important to recognize that even in the context of a friendship or an acquaintanceship that you've developed over a long period of time, you may still face rejection for what you believe and sharing what you believe about Jesus. Even if it's done well, even if you do it patiently, as I've been recommending So let's look at this morning, first, that we will face rejection, second, our individual response to rejection, and third, our social response to rejection. First point this morning is that we will face rejection, second, our individual response to rejection, and thirdly, our social response to rejection. So first, we will face rejection. And what do I mean by that? In verse 13, the very first verse of our scripture this morning, it says, Now who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? On the surface, he's saying, look, if you're just nice to people, no one's going to harm you, right? That's actually not what Peter's necessarily saying. In fact, the entire background of 1 Peter, that whole letter is written to Christians throughout a region that are actively being persecuted. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls trials that they're facing, In 1 Peter 4, he uses the same language that they are undergoing fiery trials, and by that he means literal, physical harm being faced by Christians in that area of what's now modern day Turkey in the first century. So when he says in verse 13, who's there to harm you if you're eager to do good, he means ultimate harm. He means eternal harm. No one can rob your status in Christ if you are a Christian, ultimately, and even still, you might actually suffer. So he goes on, for instance, in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. This is a near verbatim quote of Jesus' beatitude that Calin just read out of Matthew 5. It's how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount. And he's, it's a near verbatim quote. If you're Blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake is what Jesus says instead of suffering here, and you'll be blessed. And really what's in, in line here is physical harm. This is the most extreme form of rejection. Thankfully, it's not something that many Western Christians or American Christians have to face. But it was one that they had to face. Regardless, there are other forms of rejection here. In verse 16, Peter talks about being slandered or reviled. This is not physical harm that you may face, but it's mean things people say to you. For your faith, because you are a Christian, slandered, is basically behind your back, reviling is to your face. Ridiculous Christians, idiotic Christians, stupid Christians. And then in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good. This is a different word for suffer here, and really it's a catch-all term, what Peter implies, like, hey, look, you might just face, in general, some kind of social ostracism. So what's being presented here is a kind of gradation of rejection. There are different degrees of being rejected for believing in Jesus, for following him, for trying to share Jesus. The first is the most mildest form, which is simply just people might say mean things to you. The second is social ostracism, or you might say exclusion. Because you're a Christian, you don't get to be included. And then the third is physical harm. Now again, Christians might not actually face legitimate physical persecution in America, but Chances are, if you're at all a public Christian, you may at some point in your life, and I think you will at some point in your life, face insults or exclusion. Those first two gradations of rejection that I'm calling it. Now, you may bristle at this either because you don't want to face it or you don't actually believe it. But consider the following. Often deeply held truths are found in children's books, and my son, my seven-year-old son, brought home a children's book from his school library a few weeks ago called Nerdy Birdie. Now, you're like, what? You're going to give us a children's book? Follow me. Nerdy Birdie uh, is allergic to birdseed, and he likes to read, and he likes to play video games, Which means he's rejected by the cool birds. The cardinal and the eagle, they're the better looking birds and they're more athletic and they reject him. They don't want to be friends with him. And so you think the lesson will be about how nerdy bird finds like cool friends. And so one day after he's been rejected by all the cool birds, he hears this other bird up on a telephone wire and he says, hey, why don't you join us? And then all of a sudden he looks and he sees dozens and dozens of other nerdy birds, just like himself. And they're wearing glasses and he says, we like reading and video games too. And he's like, cool, I'll join you guys. And so then they're hanging out and they're reading and they're doing the video games. And you think, this is great. Everybody needs a group, don't they? You think that's how the story might end. That's how I thought the story might end. I thought, oh, this is just a nice little story about including people. It wasn't. Because then a vulture comes by. And Nerdy Bird is like, cool, yeah, we accept people in the Nerdy Bird crowd. The vulture walks by, and then he goes, hey, you could be a part of our group. And the other Nerdy Birds are like, no, he can't. He eats really gross food, and he doesn't like video games. He cannot be in our group. But Nerdy Bird is going, wait, but I thought we accepted people. No, 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 they just accepted people just like them, just like the cool people did. And so Nerdy Bird leaves, and then he's socially ostracized for joining with the vulture, and then they create and start their own group. The point is this, where there are groups, there will always be in groups and out groups. Wherever there are groups, there will always be in groups and out groups. Another way of saying this is that Christians will face opposition for being Christians, just like anyone else of any other group will face opposition just for being themselves if they're a part of the group. Cool kids may reject the nerdy kids, but the band kids also make fun of the cool kids. I know, I was one of them. I've even heard from our high school students. I was a band kid, by the way, Um, in case that was not clear. Um, And then I've even heard from our, because we're in the Bible Belt, I've heard from some of our students that a lot of times at school, Christians will be making fun of the non-Christians because they seem to be in the minority, which is not cool. You can't do that. Don't do that if you're a Christian. What I want you to see is wherever there are outgroups, there will be insults and ostracisms because outgroups are everywhere, and this will happen to Christians too. Which means if rejection for sharing our faith is at some level inevitable, that means that Christians, whenever we share our faith, should be a little different. We should be a little different. Which means if this isn't happening to Christians, it's because Christianity is seemingly dominant in the Bible Belt. And I say seemingly because I don't really think that it is. But if Christianity is seemingly dominant in the Bible Belt, then the problem is that Christians aren't different enough. Do people really look the way Jesus wants us to sexually? Do we really look the way Jesus wants us to look on the athletic field? Do we really look the way Jesus wants us to look, and not just look, to actually be in our souls with the way we spend our money for the sake of the poor? What about with our social media use and tech addiction? If we don't look different, then there's nothing to insult or ostracize, is there? Another takeaway, I think, is I think we should reject the lie that if Christians are just nice enough, or if we're just patient enough, or if we listen well enough, then everyone's going to like us. I don't think that's true. No, well, I think we should still be nice and listen to people, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But there's no guarantee that Christians will not face rejection. Again, what Jesus says about sex is not popular in this culture or with the media, What Jesus says about weakness is not popular with the so-called right-wing nationalism. What Jesus says about money is not popular with greedy capitalists. And what Jesus says about forgiveness is not popular with vindictive social justice types. you see how I just picked on everybody? At some point, to follow Jesus is to be unpopular or to be rejected by somebody somewhere. Certain things might fit more with the culture in America and less with the culture in America. Some things might fit more with the culture in sub-Saharan Africa and less with the culture in sub-Saharan Africa. But somehow, some way, somewhere to really follow Jesus is to be rejected by somebody. Which means we should probably, if you have children, we should probably be preparing our kids for this. Let me say this again. We should probably be preparing our kids for rejection. I think a lot of the loss of the Christian faith, not exclusively, but a lot of loss of the Christian faith down the generations into younger generations is because we think that we, our kids should be liked by everybody, and parents are afraid of their children not being accepted or liked, so they just let them look like everyone else. I'm a parent now. My oldest child is 12. That is a real fear. You don't want your kids to be rejected which means we should probably be preparing them to be a little weird. Okay, so I've already begun to prep you on, okay, so how do we respond? If we're going to face rejection, if at some level that is inevitable, how should we begin to respond? And I want to look at our individual response to that rejection. That's our second point this morning, our individual response to that rejection. In verse 14, the second half of verse 14, it plainly says, When you face rejection, have no fear, nor be troubled. That's simple, right? Okay. You're afraid of being rejected, so don't be afraid. Right? That'll work. (laughs) No, of course it won't. Just being told not to be afraid is not necessarily the most effective thing, which is exactly why Peter gives us reasons. Why? Why should we not be afraid? And in verse 15, he goes on to give reasons. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, he's saying, when you face rejection on the outside, go to the inside. Where for Christians, Christ's spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us. And in our hearts, if, when we're honoring Christ, we can find greater strength there than whatever rejection we will face out in the world. Jesus says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, meaning spiritual warfare or demonic forces. Paul in Romans 8 says, if God is for you, who can be against you? If it really is true that the king of the universe lives inside of you by the power of his Holy Spirit, then what projection could possibly so intimidate you? Rather, it's actually the other way around. Everybody else, every other dark force in the world should be intimidated by you because the Spirit lives in you. It's like that final Lord of the Rings movie when King Aragorn gets off the boat and he's, he's about to fight all the evil armies at the gates of Mordor. If you've seen the movie, you might be familiar with the scene. And it's not really going well for the good guys because there are evil elephants just waylaying people. There are these evil, dark, kind of half-ghost kings that are just mopping up the floor with everybody. And there's all these just tens and tens of thousands of orcs, just evil-looking beings. And it's not going well for the good guys until King Aragorn gets off this boat in the river and he's got this kind of smug look on his face, very confident. and He gets off the boat and he's all by himself. And you're like, why, why is he looking like he is dominant and a boss? What's one guy going to do against tens of thousands of orcs? Until you realize that he's convinced under the mountain this whole host of invisible ghosts to go to war with him. And the bad guys can't see the invisible ghosts at first. And then he gets off the boat and the invisible ghosts begin to waylay all the bad guys. And they conquer the battle in minutes. That's what it's like to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Honor in your hearts Christ the Lord as holy. You're getting off the boat and you're going, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter if I face rejection. That inner strength from God then doesn't shy away from continuing to be a witness. You see, Peter here assumes that Christians will be rejected, and then he's saying, keep being a witness. Keep sharing your faith. It doesn't matter. So then he goes on in verse 15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Keep sharing about the hope you have In Christ, don't stop, and then he gives this additional advice. Do this with gentleness and respect. That's very important in our culture where we always just try to one-up each other on social media or when somebody's wrong on the Internet somewhere, gasp. Someone's wrong on the Internet somewhere all the time, by the way. It's okay. You don't have to fall for the bait. Do this with gentleness and respect. We should never be triumphant or judgmental. And winning a debate is not an effective motivation. So your individual response should be to feed on Jesus in your heart, to keep at it, and to do it with gentleness and respect. So that's our individual response. What about our social response to that rejection? So rejection is inevitable. There's an individual response. And then there's a social response. This is our third point this morning. There are two words in the passage that are easy to miss as a 21st century American. And it's the word honor in verse 15 and the word shame in verse 16. These are communal or social words, especially in the first century. In verse 15, what we are to honor is Jesus in our hearts. We've already looked at how we're supposed to honor Jesus in our hearts, the heart emphasis. But now I want you to look at the word honor and note that it's a social activity. Honoring means to enhance the reputation of someone else. Honoring means to esteem something publicly, in public, in front of other people so that other people will esteem that thing as well. Honor means to give appropriate respect and reverence to something. There are at least those three ingredients to honoring. Enhancing reputation, esteeming value publicly, and treating with respect. And what we're to do with honor here is to do that with Jesus or for Jesus. Peter is saying that our evangelistic response is actually a public one. We do it in public. We do it in groups. We do it together. We enhance Jesus' reputation. We esteem Jesus publicly, and we respect him publicly. And shame is the opposite of that. Shame is to decrease reputation to denigrate publicly, and to treat with contempt, all of that publicly as well. A famous literary example of this is Hester Prynne in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, which depicts 1600s colonial Massachusetts, and Hester Prynne has conceived of a child out of wedlock, and the whole town is just aghast, and it's the worst thing ever, and so she has to wear this scarlet letter, A for adultery, and everybody shames her, which It's not a Christian response, I don't think, but they thought it was in the 1600s. And so she has to endure the shame, the decreased reputation. Now, we live in an incredibly individualistic society, which is not quite an honor-shame society, but we do have elements of it in our culture. Consider this. Consider former UT football coach Jeremy Pruitt. Could he show his face in a run-of-the-mill restaurant in Knoxville today? No. Because of what do we honor? We honor publicly. We esteem something publicly. UT football, we do not esteem cheaters. And we do not esteem people who do not win at UT football, right? But then a year ago, I was in the same restaurant that Josh Heupel was in. And he had to go to this back private room to be seated. Because we do honor Josh Heupel, the new football coach. And everybody wants to take selfies with him. See, honor what we esteem publicly, what we want to give respect or deference to versus shame. Now this is why Peter uses the language he does in verse 16. He does not say it's the Christian's job to bring shame on those who are enemies of the faith. It is not the Christian's job to to shame the revilers of believers. Rather when Christians return good for the evil that they face, it's the Christians who are still gentle The Christians who are still honoring Jesus publicly, and that's when the revilers will bring shame on themselves. That's what verse 16 says. So when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame of their own accord. In other words, Peter wants the Christians' faith and honoring of Jesus to be public, so that the shame is also kind of a reverse social dishonor for those who revile Jesus. Jesus. What would this look like for us as we share our faith? First, this means that most efforts to share your faith should be in the context of a shared relationship in the flesh. The internet is a cesspool of attempts at honor and shame where you've heard of cancel culture. We all, we all need to pile on this person or we all need to embarrass this person. Now that never is going to be effective on the internet because there is always some niche somewhere on the internet of someone to back you up. And agree with you, no matter what, which is why the internet is a tool for polarization and all these people going in all these different directions and finding the crowds who have just people who just dis- or just agree with them. You will never be able to effectively share Jesus publicly on the internet, not not with any sense of honor or shame, as we're talking about here. Second, then, it also means that we should be tethered to a community of other Christians where you honor Christ together regularly as a communal identity. If you don't have some permanent place of Christian belonging, you can never be a part of the honoring of Christ publicly. You might be a part of a temporary gathering, or you you might come to church once a month, but if you're not actually known by people, wherever you call it, a permanent Christian gathering, which is why we have the church, for all of the church's faults, that's why we have a church, so that there's a permanent place to honor Christ together, which takes the sting out of rejection a little less, doesn't it? If you're doing something together, then it's okay. You don't mind the the attempts to dishonor you for believing or trusting in Christ. And then I think it makes us more courageous than to share our faith as we do it together. Uh, Back in our second sermon in the sermon series, I talked about being salt and light together. And so you can go to that sermon for more ideas about how to share our faith together. But I do think it gives us more courage when we do it together. And so if somebody's reviling a group of people, that brings shame on themselves, as Peter says. And finally, what I want you to consider is that the very thing that we honor, a crucified Savior, was the mark of great shame in the ancient world. Christ died on a Roman cross, which is a mark of great shame for a Jew. It was a mark of social dishonor. He also died on a cross, which was a sign of weakness, which was a great matter of shame for a Roman. So whatever the culture was for him, he was enduring tons of shame. Social dishonor, what we denigrate, he was scoffed at. And for any human being, he endured shame because he effectively died naked, suffocating to death. And he did it for you. He endured shame and reviling, and he was persecuted not for his faith, but because he is the faith. And that should make you more fearless against rejection. Like my son Davey a few weeks ago. He's the youngest kid on his baseball team, which means he's a little more behind developmentally. And he was having a tough night. Uh, He's got this weird stomach thing, where it causes him to have these mild gag-ups from time to time. And he was doing that in his baseball game. To, to compound matters, the following day, the following morning, he was going to have a procedure on his ear, a minor procedure, a minor surgery to get some ear tubes out of his ear. And so here he is, a little behind developmentally from other kids, and he's sharing in the dugout that he's been throwing up a little bit. Not bad enough to where he can't play, but just a little bit. And then he's sharing that he's got uh, a surgery the next day, and all the eight and nine-year-olds, and he's seven, all the eight and nine-year-olds are going basically with a look of incredulity, like, What? This kid's ridiculous. He, he doesn't have surgery tomorrow. He's not been throwing up. And uh, so then Davy comes to me, facing this mild rejection from his teammates. He goes, Dad, would you tell them that I got surgery tomorrow? Would you tell them I've, I've been throwing up? Because I'm like a dugout dad. I go, yeah, guys, uh, Davey does have surgery tomorrow. I have seen him throw up a little bit. Let's encourage each other, okay? And then Davey stood a little taller. <laughs> now, some of those kids... You know, then kind of faced their ire or their looks of incredulity on me, this mild rejection. And Davy became a little more fearless because someone had taken the rejection for him. Friends, if you really believe that Christ endured the rejection for your sakes, then you'll fear rejection less and less too. Which is why I want to close with this next verse. It's the very next verse. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous. He is the righteous for the unrighteous. That's all of us. That he might bring us to God. You believe that. That'll change how you handle rejection. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you can join us next week. God bless and have a great week.